Good morning, everyone. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5, and we're going to start at verse 9 today. So once you've got that, then please stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the words of God. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, and has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger, Mary's, younger, younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And you can be seated. So in our series here in 1 Timothy uh, 5, well, we're at chapter 5 now, uh, we're continuing on, kind of on the same theme. And it might seem odd that so much space is dedicated to this narrow topic of widows, or what seems to us to be a narrow topic. Right now, this is two Sundays in a row that we're talking about widows, And we've covered many big themes, or what seem big to us, like prayer, or the resurrection, or the ascension. And now we're spending two Sundays on the topic of widows, and that might seem odd. However, this actually points out to one of the reasons that we think sequential expository preaching is so important. And sequential just means you keep going through verse after verse after verse. And expository preaching means you're, you're preaching what's in the text. You're, you're just working through it, bringing out the meaning of the verses. You're not picking a topic and then finding scriptures from different places to pull that together. We're going through the Bible on the terms that scripture presents itself. And topical preaching may have a place from time to time, but it should not be the regular diet of the church. Topical preaching allows a preacher to cherry-pick those things that he wants to talk about all the time and to ignore those things that he doesn't want to talk about. So expository preaching is actually a safeguard for the church. The preacher's not allowed to pick up a hobby horse, and he does have to face difficult texts. And further, the Bible doesn't actually present itself as a topical book. You know how the the Bible's arranged? There's not a book of prayer, and then a book of family, and then a book of justification, and a book of eschatology. It, It doesn't present itself that way. It presents itself on its own terms. And so this doesn't deny the importance of putting the pieces together in a systematic way, but it does show us that we need to tackle the Bible on its own terms. Maybe we're not asking the right questions of the Bible. And so when we treat it on its own terms, we are asking the questions that Scripture itself tells us to ask. And we need to be humble enough that we stop and think, well, maybe I'm asking the wrong questions. Maybe... Maybe God is wise in presenting scripture as he has presented it, and we need to work through it on its own terms, rather than ask a question of the text and then uh, try, to, try to work at it from that way. So, sequential exposition simply means we keep going through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and bringing out the full sense of the text. 
So the wrong way is pick your topic and then insert it into the text. The right way is work through the Bible on its own terms and pull the meaning out so that God controls not just what is said, but also the agenda of what we are preaching. And so this allows Scripture itself to not only answer our questions, but to frame which questions we ought to be asking in the first place. It shows what God's priorities are because he is the one who has authored these texts. And the practice of expository preaching protects the church from an unbalanced diet of certain topics and hobby horses, and it also protects the church from the avoidance of difficult issues, because if it's next up in the text, you just have to work through it, right? It, It kind of ties the preacher's hands, and that's a good thing. And this has been the way that the church has normally handled the Word of God, at least where it should have. Uh, There's a story in uh, the Swiss Reformation. John Calvin is in the city of Geneva, Switzerland, and he gets exiled for a number of reasons. The the city council asks him to leave, and so he has to leave. And he leaves, I think, in the year 1538. He gets exiled out of the city, and he has to move on. And he was mistreated quite badly by the city. And when he comes back three years later in 1541, he could have gone up and told a sob story or got the church to feel sorry for him or or how he was improperly treated. But what he did, rather, not a word, he climbed the pulpit and picked up his exposition in the Psalms exactly where he had left it off three years later. That's the kind of commitment to expository preaching that all of us should be committed to. Verse by verse, let God control the agenda. Also looking back at this time in the Reformation regarding the the power of God's word, Luther, looking back on his ministry, says that really he had done nothing. He says, take me, for example. I opposed indulgences and all papists. Papists are just people who follow the papacy, the pope. But never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or sat in a Wittenberg inn with my Philip of Amsdorf, The word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. That's a confidence in the word of God. And this is why we all need to stick closely to the text of scripture that is God's word because this is where our wisdom comes from. Not just in what is said but in the way that it's presented to us. Last week we saw that the church is a family and that we ought to treat one another with respect and dignity that comes with being family members. And we saw that the pattern of creation is affirmed. The structure of the family, of husband and wife and children, is the most foundational unit in all of society. And it should serve as our main safety net, our main group of support, help, and encouragement. However, sometimes the safety net comes apart, and the needs need to be met in a different way. If it can't ordinarily be taken care of by the family, then the church needs to step in. And when church members or family members step in and take responsibility for a difficult task or a difficult situation, such as the death of a husband or the breakdown of a family, they are telling the truth about who Christ is. And this is important. When we talk about taking responsibility or we talk about what it means as a man to take responsibility for those around you, we've got two examples. We've got two heads of humanity. We have Adam who tries to escape responsibility for a situation that he directly created. And then we have Christ, who does take responsibility for a situation he did not create. And as men in particular, we are to image Christ and not Adam. We take responsibility even if we didn't cause the mess, just like Christ did. It's the coward Adam who creates a bad situation and then tries to escape from it. 
And so that should always be at the forefront of our minds when we think through our responsibility or when we think through what we need to do. This shouldn't be just some kind of external rule keeping. We need to be asking ourselves, what is the gospel saying in this situation? How am I imaging Christ? What's the story of the gospel in this situation? And that's where that gets us to now. So last week we looked at how widows are to be taken care of by the church. And now we'll see further instruction on that. But not just that, but also how these widows then can minister to the church. So this isn't just a one-sided thing, but these widows are also involved in an important ministry in the church itself. So in verse 9, it says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. So at first glance, you might think that this is just a, a, just a charity list and that the enrollment means that only women over 60 are eligible for church help. And we know from verse 3 that that's not the case. There is no age limit on the, the help that widows are to receive. However, the church and the individuals in the church, uh, well, as we saw, are, are instructed to help widows without any reference to the age. So the list that is here in view that, is, that these widows are to be enrolled in is most likely a kind of a dual purpose kind of a list. These widows were being supported by the church, but at the same time, they're also heavily involved and in a unique position to dedicate themselves to minister to other women in the church. The widows who were enrolled were to be at least 60 years old, and this is an arbitrary number. Remember a couple weeks ago, we saw Timothy was a young man. He was under 40, right? 40 was the age of adulthood, the age of maturity, and now 60 is the age of being eligible for help. It's the age of retirement. Uh, it's the age of a different season of life. And it's an arbitrary number, but a number is used regardless uh, to kind of mark what season of life people are in. Above the age 60, remarriage was much less likely than it is below the age of 60. And by age 60, the years of childbearing are clearly behind a lady. And the lady is in a position now to dedicate herself to the ministry that she has in the church. Simply put, the older widows over age 60 no longer have the cares and responsibility of a full house and little kids and a full uh, yard full of responsibilities. She's available to the church in a way that a younger woman with her young family is not. And this frees her up to help the church uh, in a different kind of way now that she's in a different season of life, which is why she is to be enrolled in a unique way. And so the unique ministry of these older widows is consistent with the instructions that Paul gives to another one of his young pastor students in Titus. Uh, and these two fit actually together very, very well. In Titus uh, 2, verses 3 to 5, we read that older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so because we have already seen that the church is a family, we also see how important intergenerational mentorship is, right? What's dad's job other than to hand off masculinity to his boys? What's mom's job other than to train her daughters how to be uh, the next wave of young women? And in the natural family, the mother provides a key, hands-on responsibility for the children and her household. So it would make perfect sense that when we expand this to the church that women take a, a similar role. She has a special kind of ministry that's unique to the younger women. And when we think about male headship in the house or in the church, 
we're looking at something that's very important and it's absolutely under attack and controversial in our culture, even in the church, it's under attack. Okay? But we shouldn't be so opposed to what's happening in the culture that we make an equal but opposite error. Okay? So we shouldn't uh, look at the feminism that's rampant in our culture and say, well, whatever that is, I'm going to do the exact opposite of it. That's not biblical balance. So we should never treat it as though, well, women have nothing to do in the church. Women have no legitimate ministry in the church. That's simply not the case. Because these ladies, these widows, are clearly set apart for an important service in the church. It says that they are to have been the wife of one husband, and this closely mirrors the, uh, the qualification for an elder in 1 Timothy 3, 2 and 12. Right? What are deacons and elders supposed to be but the husband of one wife? And now we have a woman in this position, and she is to be the wife of one husband. And just like the requirement for elders and deacons doesn't rule out multiple marriages through, uh, through death, let's say, it doesn't mean that this woman has only been widowed once. Maybe she's been mit- widowed more than once. Uh, so it's not a reference to that there can only have been one marriage. What it is a reference to is to sexual purity. It means that in her marriage, or marriages, she was known as a faithful and sexually pure woman. Right? So just like the elder or the deacon is to be a one-woman man, so this widow who is to minister to the younger ladies in the church is to be a one-man woman. That's what the reference is here. It doesn't mean she's disqualified if she's been widowed twice, for example. And then in verse 10, And having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And the older widow, which is in view here, is a woman who has a clear track record of godly living. She's known for this. And notice how many of the descriptions that are here are kind of the the feminine or the female analog or comparison to what we read about elders and deacons earlier in the book. And this gives further support to the view that these women, by being enrolled, were dedicating themselves to a certain kind of a recognized ministry in the church to the younger women. Okay, so these are kind of the female counterpart to deacons. So just like a deacon is to be a servant in the church, generally, as he cares for the practical and physical needs of those in the church, so this woman, in her ministry, and her responsibility, takes a special role in the church by mentoring younger women. And her qualifications fit this job description, right? It says she has brought up her children, which is also an indicator of her age. This is in the past tense. This is done. She's already completed this. She's passed that test. She's now equipped to move on to a different season of life. So again, this makes sense with the age marker being over age 60. It says she's shown hospitality. And this is another reference to her domestic nature. Okay, And again, we're bumping up against what is popular in our culture, and even, sadly, in many churches today. Okay, But we don't... Uh, combat an error by making an equal and opposite error. So the Bible does not teach that a woman's place is in the home. It does, however, teach that her priority is in her home. She is free to pursue other interests, as the Romans 31 woman did, but not at the expense of her home. Even these extracurricular activities are for the blessing of her home and not a distraction from her home. If she's engaged in things outside of the home, it's for the blessing of her children. And if you read the Proverbs 31 woman, she is involved in a business, she's involved in real estate deals, but it's all for the blessing of her family. Okay, This idea that a man and a woman are 
kind of roommates and they're each pursuing their separate careers and a separate way of living is false. It's destructive and it's both a cause and an effect of our breakdown divorce culture. So a woman is free to pursue other things but it needs to be for the blessing and the nurture of her home uh, not in competition with her husband. Okay? <clears throat> so most of her energy will be focused on her home and on her children especially in the younger years. And sadly, our society does view this as second-tier work. However, the Bible prioritizes this work. This is what a woman was designed for right from creation on. After the fall, Adam names his wife Eve, which literally means the mother of the living. Okay? The mother of all the living. This is a glorious task. She is the bringer of life. She has a power that a man cannot possess. She is the mother of the living. And she invests herself in these little image bearers who are going to live eternally. Okay, and think about that. When you bring a little baby into your house, there is a little person who is going to live forever, eternally in heaven or in hell. That's a serious task. And to say, well, I'm just a, no, a stay-at-home mom. Right? What? You're running an 18-year Bible college in your house for little people who are going to live forever in heaven or in hell. Just because another woman gets to ride an elevator and gets her own stapler in a cubicle does not mean she's achieved something that you have not achieved in your home. Nurturing these little eternal souls. This is the highest and greatest calling that a woman can have is to follow her mother Eve to be the mother of all the living. Young ladies, there is no higher calling. Okay? When the culture says that you are second rate if you pursue this, know that that is a lie. God has made you to be a woman. This is glorious. And the kind of woman who's fit to minister to other women in the church is a woman who has passed the test of raising her children, of using her home to show hospitality. These are uniquely feminine traits. And femininity is a glorious and beautiful thing. If you're a woman. Okay? No corporate vocation can rise to a higher level of importance. And this is true for all of us. This is true for men as well. This is true for every individual. We will not climb ourselves into a higher position than the way God has created us for. Okay? Your highest and greatest calling is to pursue that which for which God has made you. And by throwing off God's design and pursuing something different, just because it might seem self-fulfilling to you, does not mean you are achieving something higher. It just means you are trying to break off the shackles of God's design, and that will not work. Cannot work. Will never work. Okay? And of course, we allow for exceptions. We're not legalists, right? So there are different seasons of life in which time is to be budgeted differently. Little kids need mom more than kids who are out of the house, for example. Okay? And we also know that providentially some people don't marry. For some, singleness is a gift that God gives them. And they are to uh, leverage that for the greatest advantage of God's kingdom as well. Okay? And some married people are unable to have children. So life happens in a fallen world. Things don't always go according to the way we expect or according to what's normal. But our society has taken these exceptions and then normalized them so much that just to read 1 Timothy 5 verse 10 or to read Titus 2 verse 3 to 5 seems like it's from another world. It seems like it's irrelevant. Okay? Because we have normalized the exceptions to the point that we forget what the design ever was in the first place. And ruling by exception makes for terrible law. Okay? You rule by the normal pattern, not by the exceptions that may crop up from time to time. So as Bible-believing Christians, we will make no apologies for how God has designed things, 
nor for the instructions he has given us, including when those instructions are male-specific or female-specific, as many instructions in the Bible are. Every Christian society that has been built, is being built now, or ever will be built, is going to be built by strong men who take responsibility like Christ, and by wise and godly women who know how to build their homes and how to nurture little, little souls, little image bearers. And you can see when this design goes wrong, how backwards it gets. In about 100 years ago, looking at the first wave of feminism, uh, the Christian commentator and poet G.K. Chesterton looked at what was happening around him in Great Britain, and he noted this, and this is a profound insight, and I think it still applies today. He says, feminism is mixed up with a muddled idea that women are free when they serve their employers, but slaves when they help their husbands. Isn't that interesting? You're a free woman as long as you're serving a man who's outside of your house. (laughs) It's backwards. God designed the family to be the primary unit, not the corporate workplace. According to the Apostle Paul, it is precisely the feminine virtues of raising children and showing hospitality that have qualified these older ladies, these older saints, to mentor and to help train up the next generation of godly young women. So in other words, the woman who has prioritized her family and her home has not missed out on her highest calling. She has excelled at the first test, and now she is equipped to take the next test that God has in store for her. She is now qualified to be a valuable teacher in Christ's church. Further, it says that she has washed the feet of the saints, which is a picture of humble service. Right? And in that culture, we all know people didn't wear boots uh, or things that covered their feet completely, they wore sandals. And if the primary mode of transportation is walking, you can imagine how people's feet looked uh, walking in sandals or barefoot in the desert. This was not a glorious task to wash people's feet. It was the job of slaves. Slaves typically did this. When a guest came into the home, the slave would wash feet. And yet Christian instruction is that we are to put others ahead of ourselves, to love others ahead of ourselves. We wash others' feet. We take the lowly position, just like Christ himself did. Right? We all know in uh, John chapter 13, where Jesus himself will lower himself, being God even, uh, he lowers himself to wash the feet of the apostles. And this woman has shown a track record of similar service to those around her. It says she has cared for the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work. And so it's becoming clear what we are, what's emerging here is a picture of a dear lady who has devoted herself to the service and to the care of others. First her family, but then also more broadly to others around her. And so like the parable of the talents, because this woman has been faithful with what she has been given and turned a profit on it, she's now to be entrusted with more. So it's not surprising that God will put her into a new position of further service in his church. And her way of turning a profit on the next test will be to help the women, not just in her family, but in the church more broadly, pass the test. Right? So this isn't just a, a widow who is just at the mercy of the church, just receiving charity. There's a two-way exchange here. There's a care in both directions. Yes, she needs the church's help financially to make life work, but she's also pledged herself in a unique way to minister to the church. So there's a dignity both ways here that, uh, that both are being valued, both the church and the lady who is uh, on this enrollment. In verses 11 and 12... It says here, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, 
and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Okay, and so there's more reason given here why this ought to be uh, the older widows. So the older widows are past their childbearing years, and they're at a season in life where most likely sexual passion has started to wane and to decline. And so they are probably less likely to desire remarriage. And this, in addition to their years of more experience, being at the higher age, specifically equips them for ministry in the church to the younger ladies. Okay? And so the language here seems to suggest that the women on this role were expected to remain single. That seems to be what is expected here. And therefore to devote themselves to their ministry if they are receiving support from the church. Right? So this makes sense. It's almost like you're employed by the church to minister to the younger ladies. And so the expectation is, uh, like the Apostle Paul, when he is uh, commending singleness because you can devote yourself fully to the church, that seems to be what is in view here, at least partially. A younger widow who still has higher prospects of remarriage or possibly of having more children uh, may at first genuinely think she wants to stay single, right? And she should be on this list, and, and, and maybe she even means well, and it seems like that will be the plan now is to stay single. Uh, but her relative youth is more likely to gravitate towards remarriage over time, that remarriage will seem like more and more of a good option as time goes on. And desiring remarriage is not wrong, as we'll soon see. Uh, but uh, we have this language about abandoning her former faith. Well, and what does that mean? So she's got permission to remarry. Not only does she have permission to re- remarry, but it even seems like it's suggested that she remarry. So why this abandoning the faith language? And in this particular context, the way the word faith is used here uh, can refer to a pledge or a commitment that is made. So if this woman took a pledge to remain single in order to be enrolled for ongoing church support in exchange for her ministry work to the young ladies, uh, she would be breaking that pledge if she did remarry. Another way in which she may be abandoning her former faith is if her desire to get remarried becomes so strong that she is going to lower her standards and perhaps even settle for an unbeliever. Uh, And marrying an unbeliever, mixed marriages are frequently a way of apostasy, right? You see that in the Old Testament when Israel marries the other people. uh, It's not the other people who become worshipers of God. It's the Jews who apostatize, right? So marrying an unbeliever is more often a path for the Christian to renounce their faith than it is for a way for a non-believer to come into the faith. Now, God is kind and gracious, but the normal pattern is just that. And this is maybe a point of application for the younger ladies. I've seen this a number of times in my own life, and, and many of you have, where some young lady really wants to think the best of a, of a young guy who's probably maybe not spiritually mature enough to be married, and she thinks the best, right? They're, well, here's a little birdie with a broken wing. I'm going to fix it, right? Uh, and I have known personally several women who have taken that approach to a man who was either a very immature believer or perhaps not a believer at all, And people around them even warned them, this guy's bad news. Don't do this. Please don't. Okay? And she's so far down the path already, she can't see a way back. Right? And emotions are running the show. And we've been training our young ladies in our house for a long time already. Once you get to that point, please listen to mom and dad. Here's some concrete examples of young ladies who got so uh, impatient to get married or or thought they were going to fix this guy. And they were warned, and it didn't work out. So please... Young ladies, listen to the wisdom of your parents. Listen to the wisdom of your church and to your friends. Don't just come 
don't just settle for some guy that's going to come along hoping you'll fix him. Chances are you won't. Chances are he will help you leave your faith for good. Okay, so this is a, a stern warning even for you younger ladies who aren't widows. Listen to the wisdom of others around you. Okay, mixed marriage is a bad idea. You don't want to go down that road. Please. <clears throat> so it could be one of the ways that this woman is renouncing her faith. One is to break her pledge and to desire remarriage, which, again, the remarriage itself isn't wrong. Breaking her pledge is wrong. Or it could be outrightly wrong, like she's lowering her standards to marry uh, a non-Christian man, at which point she is probably going to be on her way out of the faith in, uh, in a permanent way. Okay? But either way, there's a caution here. Then in verse 13, it says, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Okay? And so the women who were genuinely involved in this teaching ministry or in this mentoring ministry of young women probably did travel from house to house. Right? That's part of mentorship, is being involved in people, uh, being involved in their homes, getting to know people first up. And so a younger lady who might not be ready for this kind of responsibility is perhaps more apt to get distracted and to not treat it with the seriousness it deserves, and they may get distracted into idleness and into gossip and into being a busybody. And there's other warnings that mirror this quite closely, talking about false teachers in 2 Timothy 3. Paul says, For among them, that is the false teachers, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Okay? These are those ladies who, uh, who can't settle down, who can't stay on the path, and false teachers are always ready there to exploit and to offer the new shiny fad uh, that will pull these ladies into false teaching. So a young woman who lacks the maturity required for this kind of mentorship ministry is already prone to distraction and to the deception of false teaching. And if she's eager to be remarried, for example, the allure of a charismatic false teacher is that much stronger. It's that much more destructive. Because false teachers, if you notice this, false teachers have a way of sizing up who the weak are. Who's the easiest prey? Where's the low-hanging fruit? And you see this even in our uh, current days. Some of these wild ministries, uh, like these Benny Hinn crusades, they've got people walking through the lineup, pinpointing who the weak-minded people are. They know, before anyone goes up on the stage, who the easy volunteers are to get. They know how this works. They know the system. They know who the weak-minded are. They know who is susceptible to false teaching. And there's nothing more destructive than when a man finds a a young woman to be prey. And this actually underscores the importance of this female-to-female mentorship, this uh, carrying along in uh, Christian maturity. And lest we think that this is sexist teaching, but it is one of those areas where the Bible sets men apart and women apart and and recognizes that there are certain besetting sins that tend to be more attractive for men and some that tend to be more attractive for women. And we see where men tend to be lazy. Men tend to take off responsibility or shirk responsibility, and then when things don't go well, they bluster or they enjoy quarreling. Okay? or they enjoy turning things to their advantage. These are besetting sins that typically affect men more. But scripture also acknowledges that there are certain sins that tend to beset ladies more. Okay? And 
many of these things are a vulnerability to false teaching. And there's a, I saw a meme a while back that kind of riffed on this, that you know, men trying to find an angle and women being a little bit naive or a bit gullible uh, was this guy offering advice to young women on how to keep them safe from predators. And ladies, if you send me your phone number, <laughs> I'll get you all the information you need to protect you. Right? Um, it, if you're a man, you understand how this works, but this is part of the reason that there's gendered instructions uh, and everyone needs to play their role. And the older women mentoring the younger women is an important part of this. Okay, and so we've got warnings about what could go wrong by putting younger widows in a position that they are not yet ready for to do this prematurely. And we see the wisdom of reserving this work for the older ladies who have more experience, more stability, and the focus away from the young years in their home to, uh, to invest themselves in the other young ladies. In verses 14 and 15, it says that I would rather have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no, act, no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So now Paul switches back from negative teaching to positive teaching. He's warned the church about the pitfalls of young widows being put in a position that they're not yet ready for, but now he lays out a positive vision of what they should be doing. So given their youth, or their relative youth at least, their probable desire to be married again, and their ability to have children, he's repeating the feminine call. These women are still at an age uh, where it makes sense for them to keep their focus on their children and on their households. And so their youthfulness means that their energy is better spent on these things. So in a bustling home, they just simply won't have the time or the energy to become gossips or busybodies because they're investing in little children, and it's busy in a house with little kids. You don't have time for those distractions. And doesn't this also show the wisdom of God's design? We progress through life in a certain way, and we get so accustomed to it, we don't think of how well this fits. Think, you spend the first chunk of your life learning stuff, growing in wisdom, being prepared, and all of a sudden you're responsible for these little people, okay? And now you're at the peak, the energy, the strength of your years, and you've got these little people in your care at exactly those years, and just as you start getting old and tired and you can't handle this anymore, these little people are ready to launch off on their own. Right? We get so accustomed to that, we think, well, that's just how it works. But think of God's wisdom in that. That's, that's by design. Right? And then these older people that are losing their energy, they get to see the fruit as the next generation repeats this uh, and adds a whole new generation of little image bearers to God's kingdom. And then the grandparents can provide wisdom in a lower impact, lower energy way, but their, their additional wisdom puts them in a unique spot to be grandparents to their children. It's remarkable. The design of God in all of this. And so we should never be so accustomed to things that we don't just stand back and say, wow, that's amazing. I hadn't thought about that. But it's absolutely the design of God. The instructions um, are underlined here in verse 15. Because the warnings aren't just hypothetical, right? It talks again in verse uh, 15. It says, for some have already strayed after Satan. So this isn't just hypothetical. This is already happening at the time of this writing. So some of the young women evidently have already strayed after Satan. And this could be through marrying unbelievers, right? They're getting so impatient to be remarried, they'll marry an unbeliever and follow the false teachers. Or it could be that they've neglected their calling, as uh, managing their household, managing their children, and they have become the busybodies and the gossips that is being warned against. Okay? And no doubt many of us have seen this happen in our own time. So this isn't something that's just reserved for the ancient world and, and we, you know, it's just a point of speculation for us. Uh, we basically are the same kind of people 
that our first parents were in the garden. All that's changed is the scenery and the day on the calendar. But we tend to be the same kind of people. Okay? Men tend to be like Adam. We tend to be lazy. We tend to blame other people for our problems. And then we bluster when things don't go well. And women tend to be like their mother Eve. Right? Deceived, grabbing at their husband's authority, wanting to rise outside of their femininity uh, and take uh, a masculine calling. We tend to be the same kinds of people. And that is also by design. <clears throat> which is why we need to keep the gospel in view of what our calling is and not just the fall. Lastly, in verse 16, it says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And this is an overall summary of all 16 verses that we've just read here in chapter 5. Because widows are precious to God, we reflect God's character when we show care and compassion to these ladies. Right? And remember, if the goal here is to image God's character, to reflect God's glory, really what could reflect the glory of God more than strong, healthy, young people using their strength, using their abilities to care for the afflicted and the weak and the needy? Nothing images God more than that. And that's why widows and orphans are so precious to God because they really reflect who all of us are without the mercy of God. We're all vulnerable. We're all afflicted. We're all weak. We all need God's kindness to even take the next breath. And so this is a great picture of what we believe about the gospel will show up in the way we treat weak people or vulnerable people or afflicted people or lonely people. And the principle of care... Again, we see this principle underlined here is that the best care is always administered by the smallest, closest, most local, and most personal government that there is. So family first, then church, and then we move out from there. But the church does have a real calling to fill this need when the family is not there. And so the application from this week's text runs in both directions. For those of us who are not widows, God holds us responsible to care for the widows around us and most especially for the ones in our own families. To try to evade this responsibility is very serious. And remember what Paul said in verse 8, that if a man will not care for those in his household, he is worse than an unbeliever, and he has abandoned the faith. And again, that's because he is telling a lie about who Christ is. If a man is not taking responsibility for those around him, he is lying about the character of Jesus Christ. And so blasphemy of God is added to his list of sins, not just neglect of loved ones, but lying about who Christ is. And when we care for those around us, we are telling the truth about who Christ is. He takes responsibility for a situation he did not create. That's biblical manhood. And Jesus confronts the Pharisees in Luke 7 and tells them how they have neglected their commandment to honor their fathers and mothers, right? And this is one of the Ten Commandments, to honor your fathers and mothers. Taking care of a widow is one of the ways we do that. But what did the Pharisees do? They had a way of getting out of this, right? They, they said, well, no, that time and that money that I would have given to my widowed mother is now korban, right? Who remembers hearing that story about korban, right? Basically, it's a pious way of getting out of responsibility. You're saying, well, no, no, I've dedicated myself to God. I'm so busy kingdom building, I don't have time for my mother, right? And it's, it sounds very pious, doesn't it? Very spiritual. I don't have time to do the things God actually told me to do because I'm too busy filling the, the traditions of men, and Jesus calls them out for that. You're denying the law of God for the sake of your tradition. Okay? You're telling a lie about God, Pharisees. You're doubly guilty. 
<clears throat> we can't get out of this responsibility. We have a responsibility to care for the widows in our own families and in our churches. And this isn't cold, hard law. It's a picture of God's heart. And when we see it that way, it should become natural and should become obvious how we do this. This isn't just going through the motions and, well, God said so, so I guess I have to. Rather, you are imaging, you are reflecting what God thinks about these dear ladies when we involve ourselves in this kind of care. And then, for those who are widows... There is a freedom to pursue marriage again if you wish. That's not ruled out. And in many cases, as we've seen here, it's even commendable and possibly even for the best. But there's also those for whom remarriage is not feasible or it's not desired, especially for those who are older. And so it's not as though your useful days are over. Right now I'm a widow. Now there's nothing more for me to do. I'm useless. Not at all. This text sends us in the exact opposite direction. There's nobody who's useless in God's kingdom. He has called you to a specific task in a specific season. All that happens is that your ministry shifts from your husband and your young children and your household to the young women that God has put in your life, perhaps through the church, perhaps through other relationships, but your ministry has changed. It's not over, it's different. And so even in older age, your accumulated experience, your wisdom... Your godly legacy, your feminine glory, can be used to encourage, teach, and mentor the young women to grow in those traits as well. So in all these cases, the wisdom of God is so clearly on display when we see how he knits every detail together. Every little stitch is exactly the right one. No one in Christ's bride needs to be overlooked or forgotten. God supplies all our needs, and then he is most often pleased to fill those needs through other people he uses means right so he uses you and he uses me and he uses your hands and he uses your money and he uses your gifts to minister to other people and it's all knit together perfectly so the application for each one here we know which season we're in we know what god's instructions are for us Uh, but as a general principle we all need to be looking for opportunities to serve how can we serve other people and we've talked about this building a church culture this is a new church And we're in a unique spot where we can build a healthy culture. We don't have to do any demolition work. We don't have to forget bad habits because we don't have them yet. Okay? We have an opportunity here to build a healthy culture, to build a servant culture. Okay? And that means honoring older ladies. That means honoring younger ladies. That means honoring older men and younger men. But all of us need to be looking and asking God for opportunities. Show me where I can serve. Show me whose life I can plug into. Okay, and that is true whether you are man or woman, young or old. We all have a place that, where those needs can be met. And I'm hearing lots of stories, and it's encouraging. I mean, lots of people are inviting each other into homes. Uh, we're praying for each other. We're helping each other out uh, with different things, and I want to encourage that. That's important. As we build a healthy church culture, those things need to continue. Have your eyes open for how you can serve others in this church body. And with that, let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for your instructions. Lord, and I thank you that you have given us such an extended instruction on how we are to treat widows. This is clearly something that is important to you. It clearly demonstrates your character and your care and your concern for the fine details of life uh, and for how we are to honor young women and how we are to honor older women. Lord, and I pray specifically for the ladies this morning as they mentor one another, as they consider Uh, their task in encouraging and cultivating godly femininity uh, to the younger ladies who are being given a completely different message all around them. Lord, I pray that we would recapture the glory that is male and female, 
the glory that comes in your brides serving each other, taking a servant attitude, washing one another's feet. Lord, and I pray that despite gender, despite age, that we would all be looking for those opportunities to serve one another, uh, that the young would be happy to have older mentors in their life to teach them and to show them the way, and that the older mentors would be willing uh, to spend the time and to spend the energy and to invest it in these younger people to show them the way. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom in knitting us together of all ages, uh, putting us together in your church family. Lord, only you are wise enough to do this, and we want to trust this body, we want to trust this church, and each individual in here, Lord, we want to trust into your kind and fatherly hands. Lord, send us mentors, send us those who need to be mentored, Lord, and give us soft hearts, give us eyes that see the need, and give us hands that are willing to do the work. Lord, we trust this church into your care. Please minister through your Holy Spirit, through each one of us here, as we help and serve one another. We commit this all into your kind and fatherly hands, and we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So, the charge is this. God's meticulous providence and his care for his creation means that there are no wasted details. Even in heartbreak, affliction, bereavement, and pain, he is weaving together a tapestry that reflects his glory. He knew from the start that it was not good for us to be alone. And so he has added layer upon layer of undeserved creation on us. He gave the man a wife and then blessed them with children. And he is building his covenant people all through history. Part of the long lesson that we are to learn as God's people is that he supplies our every need and he is most often pleased to do it through ordinary means. That means we all have a part to play. Whether this looks like caring for a mother or a grandmother who has been widowed, adopting an older widow into your family, or making sure the church is caring for practical needs, God gives us all the dignity of fruitful labor. Whether this takes on the form of a renewed family life or of mentoring the next crop of mothers and wives, whatever our place, we have the promise that God is working all these things together for our ultimate good and for his glory. Then I will leave you with the benediction from Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal government, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And go in peace.